Hey everybody, welcome back to Studio HFL. I'm Larry Powell, your host for this podcast. I'm glad you're back for another interview. I'd like to let you know that this podcast is made possible by the generous support of my new co-sponsor, Messina Covers. David and Erica design and deliver both high-quality customer service and products, both standard and custom. Be sure to check them out at www.messinacovers.net. And Messina is spelled M-E-S-S-I-N-A-C-O-V-E-R-S. They offer their support through Patreon. Patreon is a funding platform where you can offer your financial support to this podcast, and your help will go towards hosting, production, and marketing fees. There are several tiers of support offered, and you can check out how you'd like to support this podcast at www.patreon.com slash studiohfl, and Patreon is spelled P-A-T-R-E-O-N. You can also offer support by providing comments and a rating on whatever platform you use to get your podcasts. If you'd like to receive news regarding interviews, new guests, access to Studio HFL merchandise, please subscribe to the newsletter by going to www.powellmusic.net and click on the subscribe to newsletter link. And of course, Powell Music, P-O-W-E-L-L-M-U-S-I-C dot net. And now, on with the interview. Mary Elizabeth Bowden, I'd like to officially welcome you to Studio HFL. And uh, so here's my question for every guest I have on here. What's the HFL stand for? Um, I don't know. Oh, come on. Think like a trumpet player. Higher. Faster, louder. There you go. <laughs> okay. <laughs> you know, I thought I was being really clever when I came up with that name. And it's it's funny how many people uh, don't get that. I had uh, Jeffrey Kernow the other day say something like... Uh, uh, oh, frack and pole. I mean, he was he was being very clever about naming composers. <laughs> I, I wasn't that clever when I put everything together here. So, well, welcome. And uh, my goodness, you are a busy person. Yes, it's been a little bit of a crazy summer. Well, uh, tell us uh, what you've just finished, and maybe we can go forwards and backwards from from there. Sure. Well, once I saw you at ITG and. Um... After that, I traveled immediately to uh, Mas Palomas in the Grand Canary Islands for a week-long trumpet festival there, where I performed a couple of concerts mm-hmm. and did the the Spain premiere of James McMillan's concerto for trumpet called Seraph. Um, and then after that, I continued traveling. Seraph Brass performed at the Texas Bandmasters Conference, and we also just did a showcase couple of days ago for um, live on stage in Nashville. Yeah, I saw your I, Facebook post on that. How did that go? It was great. Um, so presenters will start booking us for tours for the 2021 season. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and you know, I, I had a group. Uh, we did showcasing for about uh, four years with APAP and Arts Midwest. Uh, had tried to get on that live on stage roster, which uh, if you make it on there, you're doing pretty well. Yeah, I was excited because I know we've been trying to get on for the past couple of years, mm-hmm. and now we finally got our chance. Mm-hmm. And this is with Seraph Brass, correct? Yes. And uh, did you do one or multiple showcases down there? Um, each group does one showcase for mm-hmm. live on stage, and so we did a 15-minute showcase. Mm-hmm. Did you do it all memorized? We did most of it, most of it by memory. Mm-hmm. Is that most of your shows, are they memorized or is it kind of a mix? 
it's right now it's a mix. Um, as we perform more and more together, we start making pieces um, for memory because we've played them so many times mm-hmm. that just taking away the music stand allows us to communicate a lot better. So. Yeah. What about choreography? Are you working anything like that into staging, anything like that into the performance? Um, I, I don't think I would call it choreography, but we are aware of staging and how we communicate together on stage. Um, you know, I recently, we recently saw Boston Brass at the Texas Bandmasters mm-hmm. Conference, mm-hmm. and they're one of my favorite chamber groups, and I love what they do. It's subtle, but they're communicating together on stage, and um, I really like that approach. And then you've got Nozzle Brass, who are literally a circus on the stage, right? Who are all over the yes. place. Yeah. So good. And mix. I know they, they spend so many. I know they spend a lot of time with um, a professional choreographer working on on those elements. So mm-hmm. it's definitely, um, you know, they they really have professionals working with them, and they're all great personalities and actors. And so what Sarah Brass says, we're not that type of group um so i mean i probably would trip and fall if i had to do any extensive (laughs) walking around the stage Mm -hmm. (laughs) well let's talk about the group for a second what's the niche you know because monozzle's got theirs canadian brass still has theirs uh uh, empire certainly had theirs Uh, boston has theirs what's seraph brass's niche well i started the group in 2014 and one thing that was really important to me um, was being flexible with the repertoire. So during one of our earlier seasons, we did a lot of tours for the Allied Concert Services, and we did a more pops-like program. And since then, now that we perform a mix now for um, more popular audiences versus universities, um, at universities we do more of our modern works and commissions by mm-hmm. female composers. And so we're not, um, you know, we don't have a specific thing that we're um, – only doing pops or only doing classical. We really do a mix of things and we've added a lot of memory in the concerts as well. And so I like to keep it flexible. So, um, cause there's so many different types of music that I enjoy playing and, you know, I love the new music and the commissions, but I also do enjoy the pops element as well. How many in the group? Well, right now we have six core musicians. So at bigger festivals, like the trumpet guild conference, we perform as a sextet. We've had some of our works, um, we added a sixth part to them. And during the year, we primarily tour as a quintet. So the trumpets, the two other trumpets rotate with me. Mm-hmm. So, and we also have a, you've noticed on our website, we have guest artists that come in as well. And mm-hmm. so we're really supporting women brass musicians in the country. And yeah, it's, it's a lot of fun to play with all these amazing women musicians. Well, and I know you are comfortable as a soloist. Uh, the other members of the group, are they also comfortable uh, stepping out and, and being in front of the group as a soloist or even on their own uh, as a soloist? I think so. I've really encouraged everyone to um, pick their own solo piece to play with the group. So everybody has their own feature where they come up and play um, with, with the group as a soloist. And I think it's really fun to, you know, not just to have one lead trumpet playing all of the lead on everything. Um, I like to share the wealth and make mm-hmm. sure everyone feels like they're being showcased mm-hmm. in a positive in a positive way. Even the tuba player. <laughs> well, she has Gretchen has this amazing solo. She plays Chartus by memory, and it's phenomenal. Well, uh, what's the next big thing coming up for you guys? I mean, I know you just showcased, and you're waiting on uh, presenters to to book you for that. But do you have 
uh, already a tour lined up? Um, well, the 1920 season is pretty full. Um, we're still adding the events to the website and everything. And our next big trip is to Korea in September for a music festival in southern Korea. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's our next international trip. Mm-hmm. We have a month off right now. Um, and then we'll continue. We have tours next season in California and across the country. So, Well, and speaking across the country, you're, you're based all over the states, right? I mean, not everybody's. Yeah. So you usually come together, what, two or three days before uh, the tour? Um, usually about one day before. Mm-hmm. Um, and we do a longer week in the summer to work on the repertoire mm-hmm. for the next season. And then, so by the time the, the school year starts, you know, a lot of the players have full-time professor jobs, so it just works better to meet the day before, and we've already done the extensive rehearsing, you know, in the summer. Mm-hmm. So it this seems to to be, a, it, it's worked well for the group over the past couple of years. Mm-hmm. Let's go back to the female aspect that you mentioned a moment ago, featuring female brass players, uh, works by female composers. Um why is that important to you? I know that sounds like a redundant question, but I'm, as a podcaster, you know, I'm I'm asking <laughs> those questions uh, really for the audience who who really might want to know. Hey, what's the big deal? Um, well, so as far as having all female brass musicians in the group, um, that's that was important to me because um, I I still think we are underrepresented, and um, I really wanted to provide. Um, to be role models for the next generation of musicians. Mm-hmm. You know, I remember when I was a little girl, I uh, going to I went to tons of brass concerts around the Chicago area, and most of them were male performers. And but I never thought anything of that, you know. But um, when we're on the road with Sarah Brass and we meet younger musicians and younger female musicians, they're so excited to see professional women on stage, and so. That has been really special for us. And, you know, one of our longer term goals is to form a camp for younger female musicians, brass players. And uh, so we have that in the back of our minds. And Mm -hmm. also, as far as commissions, we have commissioned male composers, too. Um, We're not just like we only commission women, but we have focused on women composers. Mm -hmm. And um, again, just to, to kind of share their work and that it still isn't underrepresented um i think in the composition world too so Mm -hmm. it's it just makes sense for us to be able to to um showcase their works as well Mm -hmm. and i do that as a soloist too i mean i play a wide variety of works and um my newest project is a concerto consortium by composer vivian fung she's writing a concerto for me and we have launched our consortium we only need two more orchestras to fill out the consortium and the premiere is happening in march of 2020 with the erie philharmonic um followed by the anchorage symphony in april of 2020 and then we have more orchestras on board for the following season and so that's been a really exciting project for me that i started on my own and erie's the lead orchestra and um we're just really excited to be able to create this new concerto and share it with the world now, before uh, Seraph, I mean, you've obviously been uh, playing for a long time. As how how long have you been doing the solo aspect? Um, I actually had a, a late start with that. You know, most soloists are decided when they're teenagers that this is what they want to do and and go from there. But for me, um, it is something I wanted to do when I was a teenager. But when I went to Curtis, 
as an undergraduate, um, I was sort of pushed into the orchestral world, which I'm grateful for because, you know, I'm comfortable playing in orchestra and um, it helps my teaching and I still like to play in orchestra from time to time. And it's, it's nice to be able to know the repertoire so well and uh, just gives me more variety in my life. Mm -hmm. But I always wanted to do the soloist, but I just didn't think it was, I could make a living at it. You know, I had a, my teacher told me, don't do it. You're not going to be able to pay your bills. And I was like, okay, <laughs> I will listen to you because I had to pay my own way through, through college. You know, I wasn't handed anything. And, um, so I had to work really hard. I always had to work office jobs on the side. And I always, I could never do festivals when I was in undergrad and grad school because I had to work all summer wow. to pay my rent for the yeah. next year. So you know, I never had those opportunities that maybe others would have had to do festivals in the summer or to embark on your solo career when you're 18. I had to go work in a factory, you know, or do <laughs> office work, customer service, which has helped me be able to manage my own career and manage Sarah Fratz because I'm very comfortable with speaking with presenters. Admin work is no big deal for me. I can figure out things very quickly on that end. So I'm thankful for those skills now mm -hmm. because they've helped me a lot. Mm -hmm. But um, so when I was a little bit older, probably around age 26, 27, I was in, you know, in, in Richmond Symphony, um, teaching at VCU and doing artistic admin for the symphony. And doing the artistic admin job really opened my eyes because I was communicating with managers um, on behalf of soloists and helping pick the artists who were going to come solo with the symphony and everything. And I started to see their world. And I was like, I wonder if it's too late for me. Hmm. I wonder if I could do this. And I, on a whim, I went to the band center um, because I was working. I could afford to do festivals as a professional. I could save up the money and do that. And I studied with Jens Lindemann. And Never he was <laughs> <laughs> he was really the first person that I felt like really believed in me and gave me that confidence to really start taking the steps that I needed to take to become a soloist and the first was you know taking a lot of lessons with a lot of different players and really really changing just the way I approached the trumpet and my playing and getting everything kind of you know solidifying my playing in a way that I hadn't really done before just only focusing on excerpts I think makes you a little bit rigid um, so I had a lot of things to work on and um, really improved quickly and um, he helped me make those first steps you know, making a demo CD with an engineer there who continues to be my engineer for all of my CDs mm -hmm. and just mm -hmm. forming relationships with people. And then two years after that, I was hit in the face twice before the Ellsworth Smith competition. And that, the Ellsworth Smith competition for me, I felt like that was my last chance to maybe win a competition because I was 30. Mm -hmm. I had never done any competitions before that. And I was like, this is my one chance and I got hit in the face twice before that. And I went anyway. My lip was black and blue oh. underneath. Um, and I tried to play anyway. It didn't go that badly, but obviously I did not have the strength to play some of those meteor pieces. I was, I was injured. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so I took two months off after that. I didn't know. I had just signed with a manager. I didn't tell him about the injury. I just was like, I don't know what I'm going to do. This is really scary. And then I booked my first big concerto that spring and I had to figure out how to play differently with a new face. And so I really changed my playing. I really had to build up my corners for the first time. So um, it really, everything I learned from taking lessons with Hokan Hardenberger and Jens and other, they, those, everything they taught me really clicked 
after the injury because mm-hmm. I had to really use those techniques of playing that they taught me to my greatest benefit because I now had this scar in my lip to deal with. Wow. And it made me a much better player after that I was able to learn Brandenburg. I was always a natural piccolo player, I think, but I never had that. I never had that range that I needed for those pieces. Mm-hmm. And now I, now I do because I had to change the way that I, my muscles work on my face and be more efficient and just become stronger. And so um, that was a turning point in my career when I relearned how to play after the injuries. And that's when I really felt like my playing started to take off. Mm-hmm. And so I had a late start as a soloist. You know, I'm not the typical story. I'm 37 now. So I've been going on this journey for about 10 years, mm-hmm. but you know, now I've, been able to carve out a full-time living for myself as a soloist and I created Sarah Brass from the ground up mm-hmm. and recorded three albums and I've done this all on my own like no one's handed me anything so I'm pretty proud of that um absolutely sometimes <laughs> sometimes it is easy to be like oh I wish I had more more of this or more of that but I have to remember that the journey still continues and um you know a lot of people have believed in me and helped me along the way mm-hmm. um especially Jens Lindemann and uh so it's just to watch this journey is exciting. And then now I'm starting a full-time job at Shenandoah because they really like that. I've learned how to do all of these things on my own and I can really help students think outside the box and um, create a career for themselves that, mm-hmm. you know, can be, you know, really a mixture of a lot of things. Mm-hmm. And so I would not have gotten this full-time job at Shenandoah had I not gone through all the experiences of creating my own groups and um, just really creating tour projects. I mean, my, my newest project along with the concerto consortium is um, collaborating with a group based out of Pittsburgh called the, called the Casilla Ensemble. Mm-hmm. They're also an all-female group as well. And I hired them to record my CD with me that I recorded last summer. And I made a bunch of new arrangements. Um, Rick DeYoung made a bunch of arrangements for us for trumpet and string quartet and string quintet. And um, so now I'm touring with that group and we've booked two tours to Florida and Mexico this season. And hopefully next season we'll do another tour through a company. And so I've created another yet another project that will tour and allow me to be to act as a soloist. And um, it's just exciting to see the project pay off because mm-hmm. there's a lot of time and money spent and, um, and and risky because you don't know if you're going to get the reward from it. Right. So it's nice to see that it the idea was good and it's now we're able i'm able to tour with strings as well because it is hard to get you can't just as a trumpet soloist you can't just depend on orchestra gigs Mm -hmm. i mean i know that works for allison balsam but it's it's very difficult to break into that market and i have broken in with the consortium and i hope that continues to pay off but i want more time with the strings and so just playing with the string quartet is a lot of fun it's chamber music Mm -hmm. and i get to be like in the solo role and so I'm excited about those those tour weeks as well mm-hmm. as playing with Sarah Brass. Mm-hmm. So um, I'm curious about the injury. You said you had two uh, relatively it, close together. It's a very strange summer because, not to jinx myself, but I've never been hit in the face before ever, before or after that summer. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, I was at the BAM Center studying with Jens on all the repertoire, and um, the stands at the BAM Center are really kind of sticky, and I was lifting one up like trying to pull it up. And I remember in that moment, I thought to myself, just get a different stand. But then the other part of my brain was like, you're strong enough, just lift it harder. So I lifted it and it popped up and the metal part at the top of the stand cut the upper part of my lip right underneath my nose open. 
so I had to have stitches there, and I thought that was the, I'd never been injured like that before, so I thought that was, like, the end. I was like, I just ruined my life. Um, but luckily, it he, that one healed pretty quickly, because it was far enough up where the mouthpiece wasn't touching, mm-hmm. and it needed a stitch, but it, again, it, the mouthpiece wasn't touching it, so it, after, like, a week and a half or so, I was able to play again. Mm-hmm. Um, carefully, and then I built my strength up, and then I remember going to visit my husband, who's a trumpet player in Santa Fe. He plays Mm -hmm. in the opera. And that morning, I ran the first round list, and I remember Dave telling me, this is the best you've ever sounded. Mm -hmm. I was like, I've made it through! And then that night, I was walking in my car after the opera. I went to go see one of the operas, and I was pretty tired, so my reflexes were not good, and um, somebody threw a frisbee for... (laughs) I don't know why they were playing frisbee at 11 o'clock at night. I hate frisbee. And he threw a frisbee. This guy threw a frisbee. It bounced off someone's head and then bounced right into my lip. Oh, my gosh. And it was, like, one of those really big, heavy frisbees with, like, batteries in it because it was, like, lit up. Uh, Of course it would be, right? (laughs) Oh, my gosh. And it, like, just hit me right in the lip. And it hit, like, underneath. And I knew in that moment in time that it was bad because of the way it hit the inside of the lip. And it swelled up immediately like a huge duck bill. And I just knew that it was over for me for any hopes of the competition. And I tried to heal with ice and everything. And there's only so much that you can do. And I went to the competition anyway because I was stubborn. Hmm. And looking back, I should not have. But I just, I went anyway. I don't, it was really stupid. I could have gotten more injured, I think. But I, luckily I didn't. And took time off after that and I also had an audition for Concert Artist Guild the following month and I tried to go and looking back on that I just was injured I should not have been playing um so it really disappointed me it like really took down two really big opportunities mm-hmm. that were gone forever because now I was too old after that to try for those mm-hmm. so I just had to make a plan for myself relearn how to play and just make opportunities happen for myself no more competitions I was too old um, but I wasn't going to let that stop me from mm-hmm. the goal. So it was very disappointing, but at the same time, it's like, well, I have to do this on my own. And the way that I've done that is by sharing um, sharing my playing on, on YouTube and social media. Mm-hmm. I was like, well, this is how I play. If people like it, maybe they'll maybe they'll book me. So that's been my approach since mm-hmm. that, is to just share everything I can online, and that's how I'll prove myself. And mm-hmm. then playing the concerts as well as I can live and hopefully – and making CDs and just, you know, doing everything I can to, to make a career happen on my own. And then interesting, you, you talked about how all those, uh, those experiences, the job experiences, uh, you know, in the end they paid off. I mean, you're at Shenandoah, uh, you say because of, uh, well, maybe not directly there, but everything can be used, I suppose, uh, turned around to, to be viewed as, wow, I'm really glad that happened. Not that anybody invites being hit in the face, but now when you teach and what if you have somebody that comes to you with an injury, uh, you can, you can relate, right? I mean, this, yeah. the same thing with uh, all the administrative things you were talking about, uh, dealing with presenters, uh, having been in a position where you were communicating with, uh, with, uh, artist management and that sort of thing. I mean, that's, all of that has paid off, right? All of that now has become part of your, uh, of who you are and your re- your repertoire, not just your musical repertoire, right? But you. Right. Yeah. And this has made me more flexible in, um, you know, adapting to new situations. Mm-hmm. And um, 
if I ever got injured again, I wouldn't be as panicked about it. I mean, of course it would not be fun, but <laughs> you know, there's, there's steps that you can take to make sure that you can come back in a healthy way mm-hmm. and, um, become stronger after that. Mm-hmm. And, um, all the experiences that I had playing, doing primarily orchestra work in my twenties, um, I feel comfortable playing an orchestra. I did a lot of opera work and I feel like that training with being able to play in an, in an opera pit makes me a better chamber musician. You just mm-hmm. feel things differently in the music and um, there's just a, a whole nother level of experience then. So in a, in a way I'm glad that I wasn't primarily only doing solo work when I was at, at Curtis because, mm-hmm. you know, I learned how to play together as a team as well and not just, um, be by myself in front of an orchestra or with a pianist. I think chamber music and playing in an orchestra, those skills are really important to have because when you're a soloist, you, you know, I still feel like I'm playing chamber music, mm-hmm. um, you know, and it's, I think it's important. Um, and it's important as a teacher too, to be able to teach all the different styles of music. Mm-hmm. So who inspired you early on? Um, well, we, my brothers and I um, were really lucky. My brothers played, horn and trombone and they randomly picked brass instruments to be in the band my family's not musical um it just happened randomly because of my oldest brother one day wanted to play the trombone um and we found this music teacher who is a horn player named tim jones and he is a computer programmer and he went to eastman for horn and then decided to go another career route but he he loves music he's a great teacher and we found him through a friend and he invested so much time in us. He would come to our house every Saturday and pretty much stay all day. We would get like an hour or two less than every week. Um, for you know, and he wouldn't charge us barely anything. And then he started taking us to see the Chicago Symphony and to see all the brass master classes around Chicago. And my parents certainly would not have been able to do that with their schedules. And, um, you know, he gave us the tickets and mm. just really exposed us to the greatest brass performances in the Chicago area, you know, at a very young age. And mm-hmm. so I feel like I got that sound in my head of what a great brass sound is. Mm-hmm. And so having that early teacher invest so much of his free time in us was like such a gift. Mm-hmm. Like I owe, I feel like I owe everything to him. Um, so that was, he was like the, the, the person that really made us feel serious about music and mm-hmm. showed us what it could be like. So you and, got to uh, hear Bud Herseth live. I did. I got to hear his last year's. And, uh, it was pretty amazing. Mm-hmm. And, um, so that, that's, that was having that early teacher. And then I switched to another teacher, a trumpet teacher. He played horn. So I switched to a trumpet teacher, um, when I was about 13 or 14. Mm-hmm. And she was also, her name's Carrie Lee and she's a freelancer in Chicago. And she was really great to have a female role model, um, before I went to Curtis. And so those were my earliest teachers. Mm-hmm. And I remember my first CD that my teacher, Tim Jones, bought me was, um, he bought me a few, a couple of Sergei Nikarikov CDs. And mm-hmm. so Sergei was like my first musical hero. And of <laughs> course I still love his playing and he's right. incredible. Mm-hmm. And, um, so is it, that was like my first hearing his playing was and his sound and everything. That was like my first, he was my first trumpet, trumpet musical hero. Mm-hmm. Isn't that interesting? Because, you know, um, uh, I, I can think. How many people would have answered Maynard Ferguson? <laughs> yeah. You know, I mean, I, I went through a Maynard phase. It lasted, you know, maybe 10, 12 years uh, before I realized there were others out there. Um, but uh, 
yeah, I, I don't, I'm grateful for it, you know, and it's, it's funny, I certainly don't do any playing, uh, anything like that, uh, you know, not many people do, but, uh, but I, I don't do any playing like Sergei either, uh, <laughs> there are very few people I think that can uh, do what he does, right, <laughs> but, uh, well, you know, what you've done, I, you know, I think in this industry, you have to find a niche, uh, like I mentioned earlier, you know, with Serif Brass uh, having a niche. Um, and you have found a niche, uh, I think, as a soloist. Um, it's, uh, well, you've got a long career ahead of you, too. I mean, I, I had no idea. And I'm going to edit this part out. Uh, I had no idea. I thought you were still in your 20s when I saw okay. you at ITG. Um, awesome. <laughs> but, I'll take that as long as it lasts. <laughs> <laughs> but... Uh, you know, I think, uh, here's why I bring this up. You look at Doc Severinsen, who's 92. Who can imagine yeah. playing uh, into their 90s? Well, let's say, you know, even near 70s. Um, and it's just remarkable, the energy uh, that he's got, you know. But I I look at even my own playing and thinking, I'm going to play taps at my own funeral. You know, I don't ever want to give it up. Uh, I can't imagine yeah. life without playing trumpet. Um, it, would you put yourself maybe kind of in that, not that you're going to play taps at your own funeral, but <laughs> you know, would you put that in like trumpet is, is yeah, what you do? I, yeah, definitely. I mean, I, I, you know, my, I studied with Alan Dean at Yale and he just retired from Yale and I went to see his concert and retirement, his retirement celebration this past May and mm -hmm. he performed and he's a beautiful player. I mean, he's, I think he's early eighties and he, he sounds like a healthy player in their twenties. Like he's mm -hmm. re remarkable and very relaxed. And I, so I think if you, if I enjoy it and it's working and I can still create great music, then I don't see any reason to, to stop. And also, you know, I tell myself sometimes I get a little worried that maybe I'm too old to really be launching my solo career and to be breaking, mm -hmm. I still want to break some boundaries. Like my goal is to break into orchestras around the world and, really have a major solo career that's what i really really want mm -hmm. but you know i'm 37 am i too old and you know the answer in my head is no mm -hmm. because boundaries can be broken and it's about the energy that you bring on stage right. and you know improving every day and if you're if you're still in an improvement mode and curious then i think that hopefully anything is, is hopefully anything is possible i mean i look at a player like um tom hooten who's been a long-term friend of my husband, they went to Rice together and studied mm -hmm. with Katala. So we've known Tom for a long time. And every time we hear him, he sounds, he sounds better and better. <laughs> it's crazy. And yeah. He is all about improvement and um, always curious about trying to improve things mm -hmm. and exploring new ideas. Like every day he is so inspiring, mm -hmm. you know, and just, I think it's really important to, to always keep that mindset no matter what age you get. And mm -hmm. then, then, then I think it's, then it's fun. And then you're, creating and getting better and yeah i think as long as you have that mindset then things are are possible it's when people become rigid and think that they're doing everything correctly and there's no other <laughs> ways to get better that's that's when it's becomes no more it becomes it's not fun anymore yeah you know like like the exploration is you know it's i think it's partly why i married a trumpet player <laughs> because <laughs> we both are Dave, his name is Dave Dash. We're both pretty big dorks, and we love to just get better every day and right. kind of learn from each other. And um, you know, the playing, trumpet playing, does have ups and downs, and we help each other get out of 
little funks that we might get in or we help each other improve. And yeah. it's just, it's a fun, it's a fun journey, you know? Yeah. And I look at somebody like Vinny, who to me is a lifelong learner. I mean, every time I talk to him, every time I see him, any, anything you post on, on Facebook, uh, it's, it's always uplifting and, and not just moving other people forward, but it's, you know, he's excited about moving forward on things himself. And, you know, I think that's, that's what it takes. Um, and then you've got people like Rex Richardson who has what it takes, but he's also got the social media savvy. I've never seen anybody uh, with that kind of social media presence. You know, you know, when he's on the plane from one gig to the other and, and, you know, and now that's the world we live in. Right. I mean, you've got to promote, you know, here I am at 53, you're at 37. Uh, are we too old <laughs> to embrace the social media aspect of things? I don't think so. I mean, I think it's, um, if it's high quality, I think people who matter can tell the difference because it's so saturated. You have everyone posting everything. Mm-hmm. I, I got my eyes were opened up when I did the YouTube symphony in 2011 in Australia, and they were really big about social media and, um, I started to see what they were doing and that's when I put up my first playing video was playing excerpts for the YouTube symphony audition. And mm-hmm. I leave that video up because it's kind of hilarious because <laughs> it's like the video camera was literally from the nineties. Like, and <laughs> it, it's blurry and kind of like not high quality, but I played well. So I got the spot and, and, and to go to Australia, but mm-hmm. like I keep that up because you can see my pro- you can really see the improvement of the videos yeah. throughout the years. And I also like doing a mix. Sometimes I'll put up a casual video or a practice video or just a live performance. But then I also do some of the more fancier ones too. So I think it's for me really important to find that mix. So people mm-hmm. can see that you're a real person too. And mm-hmm. it's not just all this fancy video, but it's also, you can see the real person as well to make sure like, yeah. I mean, that it's not just all the fancy videos that would yeah. be, that would be questionable if it was only that as well. So I like to share a mix and Instagram has been really fun because you can share practice videos. My husband also, I've been showing him how to use social media. So he's been doing more mm-hmm. practice videos and kind of like hopefully with a pianist for fun and just record it on his iPhone and then put it up on Instagram for his students to see. Mm-hmm. And um, so that's been, it's, it's a really fun way to connect with trumpet players from all around the world and just, you never know who might hear you and, and like it and, decide to have you come in for a concert. Mm-hmm. Um, that's actually how I got my first performance in Europe um, was in, I think it was 2015. Um, uh, this guy named Tomislav Svoljar, he's the director of this festival in Croatia called Velika Gorica Brass Festival. And he commissioned Jim Stevenson, who's a good friend of mine, to write a piece for trumpet, flute, and piano called the Croatian Trio. Mm-hmm. And I love Jim's music, so... When I was at the BAM Center a few summers ago, I played the trio and recorded it and put up the live performance on my YouTube page. Mm -hmm. And Tomislav, who didn't know me, saw the video and wrote to me and invited me to the festival. And that was my first introduction to performing at a brass festival in Europe. And then from there, I met Sebastian Gill, who's the director of Mas Palomas Mm -hmm. um, Trumpet Festival, and he's had me back twice there now. So Mm -hmm. one thing leads to another, and that was all because I put up this live non-perfect performance of the Croatian trio because mm-hmm. I thought it represented by playing well mm-hmm. and wanted to share the piece. And, you know, so it's, that was really eye opening for me. Like, wow, like, you know, you don't have to wait for something to be perfect to share it, but if you feel like a video represents your playing 
and share it. You just never know what, yeah. what gates it'll open. So uh, I think, uh, if I'm not mistaken, some of your colleagues at Shenandoah are the Brass Junkies podcast guys. Yes, Andrew Hitt. Yes. So I actually emailed Andrew when I first started this podcast. I emailed him the first episode and I said, hey, would you would you take a listen? And uh, in my intro, uh, you know, I, I actually apologized. I said, look, this is not going to be perfect. Um, yeah, but if you don't like it, uh, you can email me at, you know, I think I said trash.com. You know, it was, uh. but Andrew came back uh, almost immediately. It was that same day and said, uh, you know, way to go. You got to get out there. You know, if you wait until it's perfect, it's never going to happen. Right. And yep. I think, you know, uh, and, and I listened back to my early interviews and uh, it, there's still some things that I'm working to, to fix uh, on things, but I thought if I waited, even my most recent interview, and I'll probably listen back to this and think, oh my gosh, what an idiot. You know, I can't believe I asked that question or said this, that, or the other. You know, but I'm thinking, well, so what? You know, if we get past that and we get to the content, you know, it's like, man, did they really enjoy what Mary had to say? You know, um, I think that's what matters. You know, so if I wait till it's perfect, it's never going to happen. You realized if you waited till it's perfect, you know, it probably wasn't going to going to happen. I think people... Uh, look past that sort of thing. It's like, uh, oh my gosh, I can't remember the last perfect performance I heard from anybody except maybe Sergey. <laughs> right, yeah. and I'm sure there's even things that he's probably personally not happy with. Oh, you know, right, but right. That we can't hear. <laughs> well, you know, I talked to him. I interviewed him two days before that performance at ITG, and he had just finished his first rehearsal. And the tempo, he said it was it was really slow. And uh, he was having to change his phrasing. <laughs> and I said, you know, uh, I'm, I'm sitting here thinking, here's one of the most difficult pieces that's out there. And uh, I can't imagine uh, having to change something. I mean, you work so hard to, to get exactly where you want it. And then you have to do it 20 clicks slower than, than you want to perform it. Oh, my gosh, the, the performance. Were you there Friday night for that performance? Yes. Yeah, it was incredible. Um. And there was, oh my gosh, uh, well, uh, just popped into my head, Matilda Lloyd performed uh, right before, and her piccolo trumpet playing was exquisite. Uh, just thinking about the people that performed before him that night, uh, there's some, there some really great stuff, but Sergei, yeah, he certainly uh, he certainly brought the house down. Yeah, he's, he's incredible. Well, what's your teaching studio look like at Shenandoah? Well, I think I'm starting with eight students mm -hmm. and uh, hopefully we'll continue to re recruit more throughout the year for next next year um so I'm, I'm really excited to get the students started and um yeah and to just really dive in and mm -hmm. and create my my first studio mm -hmm. is this Very all excited. undergraduate it's undergraduate and grad and there's also um there's an opportunity for doctorate students too oh okay now, do you have uh, do you have a doctorate yourself? I do not. I just have a master's. Mm -hmm. Well, don't say just a master's. Come on, we all know that's a uh, big deal too, right? Uh, <laughs> yeah, I know. But in this world, it seems like everybody wants to have that. Uh, all the administrators want to see people with that yeah. DNA. Well, with this with this job, and also my husband, you know, he teaches that he teaches trumpet at UNCSA. Um, you know, those, both of those schools. We're looking for someone who had the experience mm -hmm. of being a professional musician 
in the world rather than the doctorate right. because they, they, that was just what their priorities were mm-hmm. for that. I know sometimes other schools, they need it for admin, administrative wise, but like these schools were a perfect fit for us because, mm-hmm. you know, I have all this experience. I'm 37 and I have like orchestral experience, creating my own solo career, everything we talked about today. Mm-hmm. And then my husband for UNCSA, he has the experience of having the military band job. He was in the Marine band for four years and then, you know, 10 years with Naples Philharmonic and mm-hmm. he still plays in Santa Fe Opera. So there's such, you know, like that having such a long, not even that long, but just having those years being out there performing and have making a career work in music. I think it's really important for students to be able to see that and, and be able to learn from that. Mm-hmm. Um, so I have no interest in ever getting a doctorate. <laughs> I don't think I would, I would have the time. Yeah. Well, I, I wouldn't have the energy either. Uh, I was going to ask for any sage words, but you actually just offered some. Anything else you'd like to contribute here before we wrap things up? I think that's it. I mean, upcoming this month is, you know, I'm starting my new position at Shenandoah. And then um, I work for um, a trumpet soloist named Otto Sauter. Oh, yeah. A World Brass Association. So I'm doing two weeks in Europe at a couple of his festivals. Mm-hmm. And I know that Sergei Kirikov will be at the one in France. So it's like kind of a dream come true to be like on the same uh, faculty as Sergei Kirikov. Mm-hmm. I can't even believe it. So, um, <laughs> yeah, that's my upcoming things. And then the season starts and you can certainly keep in touch with me on social media and my website in the Serif Brass mm-hmm. website as well. Mm-hmm. It's impressive uh, what you've done. And uh, not just impressive, it's entertaining. I mean, that's really why we're in this, right, is to is to entertain. Well, you know, it's interesting. I remember being in my early 20s, and I didn't like to be re- referred to anything as young or whatever. I wanted to be mature, you know. Yeah. And now that I'm 37, like if someone thinks I'm in my 20s, I, I like that. <laughs> <laughs> so certainly being called young is not a... Uh, I don't think it's an insult by any means in, yeah. in my book. Yeah. Um, I just, you know, if you want some more sage words, I think that, um, I, you know, my mantra of my life has been like Barney from How I Met Your Mother, challenge accepted. And <laughs> um, everyone has a different path and it doesn't have to be the same path, you know. Mm-hmm. And I started my solo career 10 years too late in my opinion, but I'm showing the world that it can be done anyway and that Mm -hmm. you can still have a successful high caliber soloist career even if you start a bit later everyone has a different path everyone lives their own lives Mm -hmm. you have high standards and you really are goal-oriented and pursue those then you know you can really make an impact an impact at any age i think wow that brilliantly said right there um so, yeah, you did have some sage uh, advice. Um, that's terrific. You know, I'm even listening and I'm thinking, well, I'm going to use that. You know, <laughs> that's yeah, exactly. I mean, I honestly, sometimes I have I have my doubts and worries, too. And yeah. my main worry, to be honest, to be really open in this podcast is I'm afraid that I'm too old to make it. You know, you see other soloists who are in their mm-hmm. early 20s getting much bigger breaks, et cetera, et cetera. But, you know, I create my own path. I'm responsible for it mm-hmm. and I can only control things that I can control. And I think it's gone really well considering that I'm doing most of this on my own and yeah. I'm really proud that I'm not relying yeah. on a manager or a company yeah. to do all of my work for me. I've done it my own. I've done this like all on my own. Yeah. So, well, I think a lot of it too is staying relevant. 
right? I mean, if you were, if you just went out and did uh, all the old stuff, uh, not pushing any boundaries, not uh, pushing yourself, not uh, pushing the expectations of an audience, um, you wouldn't get anywhere. Right. And I think the risk taking is important too. It's pretty scary. I mean, when I, when I first started the um, consortium idea with Vivian, I asked her what her fee was and she was like, my fee is this. And it's a huge number Mm -hmm. and I am personally responsible for that. Mm -hmm. So I had to take that risk and kind of jump off the cliff. Mm -hmm. And now the piece is almost all paid for by orchestras. I just need two more. And so I've, taken this huge risk but if i hadn't if i had been too scared like oh i don't want to have to end up paying for this on my own or i don't know then nothing would have happened right. so that's what you know some people get handed commissions or they don't ever have to worry i think musicians in europe have an easier time with that but being an american hmm. you know that opportunities are are far and few between and you have to do everything on your own and that means taking some risks right. you know i'm certainly not rich but i definitely poured money up for these projects but Mm -hmm. then they pay off in five years everything is paid off for so you know that's been pretty eye-opening for me and my husband watching me do this he's Mm -hmm. like your investments have completely paid off more than i could have imagined so Mm -hmm. it's it's i took some huge risks but it's really nice to see that they're paying off long term so Um, but i think that's why like you know teaching students goal setting realistic goal setting and um just making sure they have the highest standards mm-hmm. and they have goals over the place of a year or five years that they can really make sure that it can pay off. I'm not sure I want my students to hear this. They're going to want to come study with you. <laughs> <laughs> See you later, Larry. I'm going to go study on. Well, where is Shenandoah exactly? It's in Winchester, Virginia. Um, so oh, yeah. about a four and a half hour drive from where we're based in Western Salem. So I'll be kind of going back and forth a lot along with the touring and everything so it'll be crazy as usual well i cannot thank you enough for the time and for sharing everything this afternoon i I really appreciate it and uh, i wish you the best with everything um i would say with your solo career but uh, you know with everything you've got going on right now i i just uh, i wish you the best i look forward to hearing you live uh, wherever that might be the next time uh, whether it's with seraph or uh or, or yourself. Yeah, thank you so much for being here today. Awesome. Well, thanks for having me. All right. Take care. Talk to you later. Thank you. All right. Thank you. Bye. Bye. Thank you again for listening to today's interview. I hope you enjoyed your time here, and please come back for more interviews. Be sure to share the news of this podcast with friends and colleagues and give me a rating on whatever platform you get your podcast from. Thanks again to Messina Covers for co-sponsoring this podcast. Don't forget that you, too, can be a supporter. Check out how at www.patreon.com slash studio HFL. And one more reminder that you can sign up to receive news via email regarding new episodes, merchandise, and more by going to palmusic.net and clicking on the subscribe to newsletter link. Thanks again for listening, and I hope you come back for more great interviews.